and take a moment and remember Sanctity of Human Life Sunday in the middle of teaching the Word of God and working through books. We also want to remember that the Lord is and we should be unapologetically, unequivocally pro-life. It is the moral battle of our generation. What we do here, I think, echoes in heaven regularly. And so may that be in your mind constantly to be praying for uh, leaders who will lead our nation away from the culture of death. And under no circumstances should any believer ever elect someone not pro-life. It is imperative. And so I want to take our time, just kind of focus our thoughts around that before we move into our verse-by-verse study. If you bow with me, if you would, as I did this morning, I really need to... I need the support from prayer today. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to uh, remember life. You are the father of life. You're the one who breathed life into us. You knit us together when we were hidden. All our days were numbered before any one of them began. Father, we remember these things that you said. And Father, we want to be a culture of life. A culture of encouragement, affirmation, adoption strengthening. And so, Father, help us to be those kinds of people. And Father, as we open your word today, as we think about these commands, as we think about the standard of holiness that's here and that applies both in the pulpit and in the pew, I pray that you will guide our hearts to understand your own words and then conform us to be like you. We pray this in the name of your Son, in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like you, if you would, turn in your copy of God's Word, 1 Timothy chapter 2. It is uh, a good morning to you. Welcome to Berean. It's good to be back with you together. Welcome students uh, back for the semester. Welcome first-timers, and thank you for worshiping with us. We hope it's a blessing for you. On the chair right in front of you, you can see a QR code. If there's anything we can do to pray for you, encourage you, you want to let us know you were here, you've got questions, that's the way to do that. Let me encourage you to use that anytime. Uh, this week, I... Uh, I prayed for the church as I've made a commitment in my own heart to do that more often, uh, to look at the passages of Scripture that deal with the church and then pray those things uh, for the church. This week, I prayed Colossians 3, 16 and 17. That is probably not a surprise to you. I say that verse often for you. It is uh, certainly important for us to do it. Uh, the, the passage goes like this, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And so my prayer for you this week is that you were in the word each day. It's always my encouragement, and I do that regularly to encourage you to read through the Bible, cover to cover each week, uh, each day, and then in the Bible each day, and then cover to cover in a year so that you'll know it and have a comprehensive understanding of it, that you might understand the God who wrote it, and you'll understand how he deals with men and his nature and holding up the holy standard. I, I prayed that you will know it then, and that you were teaching and admonishing one another. That's one of the one another's of Scripture. If it says that in the Word of God, you know it's talking to you, to do it to one another. And that you encourage someone to walk with Jesus better, and that you were overflowing with thankfulness in spite of circumstances. I pray that you, whatever you were, wherever you were, whatever you said, whatever it is that you were allowed to do by the Lord, that you did all of that to bring positive attention to Jesus and the faith that you claim, and, and that you gave thanks to him for the opportunities that he gave. And so take from that your encouragement as a church to be the church and to 
give that example to our community. I'd like if you would, we're back in our study of God's guidelines for public worship. Study through First and Second Timothy and Titus. First and Second Timothy, we know it was expressed to us in First Timothy three that it was written so that we know how to conduct ourselves in the household of faith, which is the church, the pillar and support of the truth. And so we understand that everything that we see here is about how the church is supposed to function, and Jesus has the right to say it because he's in charge of everything the church. And so we're back again in that. Uh, section. We're in uh, chapter 3 particularly, so look there, church leadership, in particular this section, elder leadership. And the section is very specific, it's very direct, so we've only covered about two verses so far, but look with me at First Timothy chapter 3 verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Now, as we've looked through those, those verses, we've pointed out that the elder, overseer, the pastor, the shepherd, uh, who Paul is addressing here, uh, and these are godly qualifications that he's supposed to model. And he's to be an example of these things, and there is only one standard, as we saw very clearly. There's not a standard for those who are in the pulpit, then a separate standard for those who are in the pew. It applies to the pulpit and the, and the pew both. It's just that if you stand here, there's not a negotiable. You can't be almost there. You have to be there. But the standard of godliness is very clear. And so far, in case you haven't been with us, uh, there are a number of principles we've pulled out from these passages. I'm going to go over with them you very quickly because yesterday, or last Sunday, I spent a, a good bit of time in review. And so, because we went off for about a month over the holidays, but... The first principle we pulled out, the office of overseer, elder, bishop, is held by a man. And we've seen that very extensively. We've looked at that clearly. I'm not going to give you background scriptures, although I have. And if you've missed any of that, you can certainly go on and catch up. Number two, there is a definitive call in the background of the qualified man. A desire both inside and outside, and that should be a common story. Number three, the office includes the labor of oversight. It is a labor of oversight of the church that he desires to do. Number four, the Holy Spirit uh, as call creates a desire to lead the church, and the Lord says that is a wonderful calling. So it kind of puts aside some of the trepidation you may have as the Lord calls you into ministry, and you think about what you've seen your pastors go through, if you've watched what's going on in the church, you might be a little bit worried about that. The Lord says it's a wonderful calling. Number five, he must be in a present state of, it says, above reproach, blamelessness. And then everything else, then you see after it says blameless, in, in our passage, defines what that means. And so he is devoted, number six, to a one-woman man in his heart and in his mind. Number seven, he's a man that does not participate in the drinking of alcohol. That is the word wineless. It's the word temperate. And that's where we stopped last time. That's the standard of godliness. It applies to every believer. And we looked at a lot of passages concerning this uh, drinking of alcohol so you could see that this is a consistent teaching throughout the Old and New Testament. And so you would understand that. If you missed any of that, please catch up. It's very, very important. Because if there was ever an issue that I find myself addressing more often than I would care to, uh, because I think that believers would know this, it's this issue. And along with the clear instruction right here in Timothy, and, and we'll see again in verse 3, I gave you numerous examples and reasonings, which I'll just go over very briefly without the supporting passages. Again, I, I would encourage you to look them up if this is an issue for you. Uh, simple fact that uh, drinking wine today is not a one-to-one -one with the biblical drinking of wine. And we looked at that very extensively. And number two, examples of literally hundreds of passages that cast alcohol in a negative light and give examples of people who used alcohol and ended up in dissipation. 
Compound that by the fact that no passage in the Bible condones drinking alcohol. All forbid it, or at best caution and limit its application. Compromised testimony certainly goes along with that in participating in alcoholic beverages that inevitably creates a difficult time for you and an explanation that has to be made along with a bad example it sets for your children. Along with putting the believer in a position of taking up encumbrances and sin as opposed to setting them aside, as Hebrews 12.1 says, to, to put aside the weight and sin that so easily besets us and run the race to get the prize. Instead, we're taking them on and adding a vice that is rarely ever unloaded without pain and heartache. And then finally, we debunk this whole deception that it can be justified under the, my freedom in Christ. So very important that the passages in Scripture we look at today are very much in line with the ones that we can look at, the hundreds of them, throughout the Scripture. And I think we should also point out the obvious meaning for temperate. That certainly applies. The word is wineless in the Greek. And there is a, a likely a larger application extending the meeting, meaning. So we, we added to that at principle number seven in guidelines for public worship and the qualifications for elder leadership. He is a man that does not participate in drinking alcohol, which allows him then to be alert and watchful and vigilant and clear-headed, which is the rest of that understanding of that passage. Anybody then in spiritual leadership must order their life in this way. It's not even an option. And this is the standard of godliness for every believer. And as I told you last week, I didn't give you my opinion. I just gave you the passages that show that this passage clearly in 1 Timothy 3 is the teaching of the general understanding of Scripture. And none of this springs out of legalism, because as I've said before, you can avoid alcohol all day long and not be godly, if you're just doing it so people think you are. And so it's uh, an important, very important principle, and one that tends to run counter to modern Christianity. So we spent a lot of time on it last week. We saw the next thing that comes after temperate is prudent. That's our next requirement, uh, which is the principle of godliness. It's an example for the overseer has to set, along with the rest of these, in seriousness, its earnestness, its soundness of mind, so as to secure a good understanding of the scriptures, so that he can present them clearly. It also must be, and he also must set the uh, godly standard of respectability. That's the next one. And that was, that was our principle number nine in guidelines for public worship. The example he has to set is the overseer has to be one whose life reflects organization. And that's not just in sermons, but a general lack of confusion, a lack of chaos in life. Of course, seriousness and earnestness, a lack of confusion, a lack of chaotic activity in the personal life, in the family, the example for every believer to follow. It's a ministry of peace, if you will. And again, it doesn't mean perfection every time. It doesn't mean that you don't ever make a mistake. It doesn't mean that plans never go sideways and fail. But it is the obvious testimony of peace in the life. Orderliness, which we're going to see later, is going to be reflected in family order. It's one of the requirements. And this is how God views the work. So it's not optional. We don't get to define Christianity however we want. Well, I'm godly, and this is how I define my godliness. We have a standard. It's not an exhaustive list, but it's certainly comprehensive. It has a lot of things to say. And this is what God expects from the elder, from those who teach, and those who are stewards of the church. And we have seen, with all the things we've just mentioned, they're to speak for him through the preaching of the word. They're to have his heart for the church. They are to lead and direct through the authority of the word of God. They have... They have said, I'll go, when he asked who can send, and so that by itself becomes an example. And it's a demanding lifelong task we've seen, but it's looked at by God as a wonderful thing. Elders are to rule the church, they're to lead it, they are to pray for the church and care for her and love her, they're to shepherd the congregation and guard the congregation. 
We saw it'll include setting policy. We saw it includes ordaining other elders. It's going to include giving a future account to the Lord, Hebrews says, of the church and of her people. And we've shown over and over there to lead by example in life and ministry. Godliness then is what's described here. It's not subjective. There is just one standard for all believers, those who attend and those who lead. And that's a serious responsibility. And because that is a serious job, the Lord hasn't left the qualifications up to chance or up to preference, or, and it's not a human ability, as we saw numerous times. God has set the standard, and as we said, these are exclusively character, lifestyle, testimony types of qualifications. Because Timothy has been left in Ephesus, there are typical leadership problems there, and so Paul has led that by the example, by putting some out, and then he said, this is what has to be true, whether you're keeping the leader or having to replace the leader, these have to be true in their life, these are non-negotiables, and this is a standard for holiness. So the ones we've seen so far have really fallen into those categories. And in order to lead in this way, it's going to have to include a number of other things, and we're going to see that as we get to the last part of verse 2. So look there if you would. An overseer, it says, then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, here's the next one, hospitable, and then able to teach. Now hospitable, that's a compound Greek adjective, philoxenos, it has uh, two words there. Philos is the word for friend, and xenos is the word for stranger. And this is principle number 10 of the example that has to be set and the guidelines for public worship and the qualifications for an elder. The overseer must be one who is a joyous host. Uh, he must invite people to his table. His home must be open. Now, as you may imagine, because this is an example that has to be reflected, uh, this is a telltale virtue of the people of God. It's not just for those in the pulpit. Paul told the Roman church to share with God's people who are in need, and he says practice, Romans 12, 12, 13, hospitality. Practice means to pursue or to chase. Sometimes it means a strenuous pursuit, and the idea as we looked at when we went through Romans verse by verse is uh, because there's not just one standard for those in the pulpit and then those in the pew, a different standard, especially leaders must not simply wait to uh, show hospitality, but here Paul says pursue it. And then 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9 tells the church, be hospitable to one another, he says, without complaint. So do it without complaining about it. And hospitality is just all over the New Testament. And, and the writer of Hebrews offers a fascinating motivation. He says, do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some people have entertained angels without, he says, knowing it. Chapter 13, verse 2. And no doubt the writer had in mind Abraham and Sarah, who being gracious to serve a meal to three wanderers in their land, found out later, looking back, that that was none other than Jesus and two holy angels in the form of men. And so the, uh, the admonition from Hebrews is, be careful how you treat strangers, because you don't know who they are. But also people will say, and I just want to talk about this because I think this is a misnomer. People will say this. They'll say innocently enough, well, you know, my wife is a really good cook and she's always cooking for our family and friends. She really has the gift of hospitality. And, and there certainly is nothing wrong with that. And my wife is a good cook. And many of you are too. And so I'll come over anytime and eat good food. I don't mind. But that's not what this word means. This is not a word about having your friends over. This is a word about being a friend to someone you don't know. This is about strangers. And so there are some really great illustrations about this, and I want to take two so you can really have it driven home how important this is, because it would be easy for us to read the passage and say, show hospitality and say, okay, and then just move on. 
But I think because we don't really understand it that well, nor do we practice it very well, I think a couple of illustrations would be important. And so one of them is found in Matthew 25. And I'd like you to hold your finger here and turn to Matthew 25. The second one I'm going to show you, and there are many such, and we could look at a bunch of them, but the second one is Luke 14. So those two passages I want you to follow along in your copy of God's Word. So open it up if you haven't yet. It's very important. We're always going to be in it here. You never have to worry about that. And so we're going to open it up. I want you to hold your finger, turn to Matthew 25, and we're going to pick up in verse 32. And just to give the context here, Jesus is teaching. He has talked about the temple and its destruction. And his disciples come up to him and say, when will these things be and what is the sign of their coming? And so Matthew 25 becomes this fascinating read about the end times as Jesus unfolds it for them, kind of in reverse order so they can see what's happening. But here at this point, he's talking about the second coming of Christ at the end of the seven-year tribulation. And there is a judgment ushering in the thousand-year reign of Christ. Why is that? Well, you get to the end of the seven-year tribulation, and you have millions of people still living on the earth, and many of them have come to faith and haven't been martyred. And then there's a lot of them in the habit, and they've rejected the Word of God. And through all of the, the testimony of the two witnesses and all the things that have been going on, they've rejected all of that. So they're still alive now that Christ has come. And so something has to happen. And what has to happen is this judgment called the judgment of the Gentiles or the judgment of nations. And the passage, and the reason why I'm going to read it, it describes uh, the criteria by which believers are recognized. Now, this isn't the way you become a believer. You become a believer by repentant faith. You believe the gospel and repent and confess your sins and believe what Christ has done for you and embrace that on your behalf. This isn't that. What this is, is how is it obvious that someone's a believer and someone isn't. And that's what you're going to see in the passage. And so there's some things that are indicative of salvation. And here's one of them. Now look at verse 32, if you would. I'm just going to read through, just make a few comments, and then comment at the end. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Verse 33, and he will put the sheep on his right, and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Verse 35, for I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. And I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. And I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Verse 36, naked, you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Verse 37, then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Verse 40, the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. And then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat, and I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink, and I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in, naked, you did not clothe me, sick, and in prison, you did not visit me, verse 44, and then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not take care of you? And then he will answer them, verse 45, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. 
Now, there are a number of things that could have been talked about in the passage. Obviously, Jesus is speaking about himself and looking forward to the time when he comes as a ruler instead of as a substitute. But here he talks about hospitality. It's almost the one thing that he can definitely say is indicative of those who've come to faith because they will practice it regularly. It's not talking about hosting your friends, although that's important too. And the other illustration, I think, will, will make that clear. If you look to Luke chapter 14, now hold and just keep your finger there in 1 Timothy 3. Luke 14, 12. We don't always do this, but I think it's important here for you to see this. It's so, it's so crucial to understand this teaching that it's just part and parcel of being a believer. So Jesus has gone to a dinner party, and he's going to take this opportunity as a teaching moment. And in verse 12... It says, he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. Verse 13, but when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you, for you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Verse 15, one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this. He said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. In ancient times, persecution and poverty and orphans and widows traveling and and traveling believers made it necessary to open the home. There weren't hotels and motels like we have today. They didn't pamper people like they do and make sure you stay and have every possible luxury The yens many times were houses of ill repute. They marked the ancient world with a black mark where people were often robbed and beaten and solicited to do evil. And there are a number of commentaries about first century uh, places to stay. Um, Barclay's got a a number of great things. Uh, Plato speaks of an innkeeper being like a pirate who holds his guests at ransom. Inns tended to be dirty and expensive and above all, immoral. There's uh, William Barclay talks about Heracles who said, uh, when his companion said, where will we stay? He said, where the fleas are the least. So we're not talking about luxury, we're not talking about comfort, we're talking about a black mark, we're talking about most times houses of ill repute, which also ended up being an inn. And in the Christian church, there were wandering teachers and preachers, and they needed hospitality. Uh, We see that often in the epistles, especially in the closing remarks, you've looked at those with me numerous times. There were many slaves who had no homes of their own. If you think of the whole letter of Philemon, uh, Paul's plea is for him to receive Onesimus, remember? And so it's a great privilege to have them come into a Christian home, maybe for the only time in their life as a church. uh, We've pointed out many times, it was kind of like a little island of Christianity and a sea of paganism in in the first century. And so Christian homes would be the safest, most enriching, most wonderful place of all. And as I'm sure you're aware, we, we still live in a world like that. We still live in a world where their people are far from home. Many are strangers. Many need a place where someone will be friendly to them. And the Christian home then would be the best place of all. The door to a Christian home is supposed to be open. And, and the heart of a Christian family there is supposed to be open to those opportunities. And you see the mark of spiritual leadership here and of godliness in general. It's not somebody who entertains his friends. Everybody does that. And, and that's not a bad thing. It's just not the mark we have here. Everybody has their friends over. Everybody takes their friends out. Everybody shows kindness to their friends. And as Jesus said, when you do that and then they do it for you, you have your reward. 
You've already done it. They've done it to you. You've enjoyed the fellowship. And you know, there's nothing wrong with that. As I told first service, it's, it's, it's a little precursor as you, as you take out Christian friends and they take out you. It's a precursor to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We look forward to the fellowship. And then the joy that's part of that friendship and the joy that's part of that fellowship is the joy that's going to be extended forever as we're in heaven with all those that are there with us. But you have your reward when you, they do it back for you, which is not a bad thing. But this is talking about people who aren't your friends. This is talking about loving strangers. And this ministry is hard. It's not easy. And it can expose you to some vulnerability and some awkwardness. And it's certainly going to put you out of your comfort zone. And if you're the kind of person that has to have a police report on everyone who comes to your home, you may have some trouble doing this. If the FBI has to do a background check, you're going to, have, you're going to struggle putting somebody in your home. And there's always a downside risk to hosting strangers. I mean, I remember numerous times, and, and we started to learn better, but I remember early on we had a lot of strangers in our home, and they all had children, and they were all upstairs in our boys' rooms, and it trashed the place. Every toy pulled out, every precious item out, playing with everything, and one of our boys was standing in the closet just to get away. We learned a valuable lesson, and you have to be aware of those kinds of things. You know, when you invite a family over, they got little kids and they all have a brand new box of crayons. You're a little concerned with that, that they'll redecorate your house while you're visiting. And so, you know, these kinds of things happen and you have to make sure they don't happen again. And we, we made some adjustments, but it appears to be clear though, even in that idea of how awkward it can be and how vulnerable you may be, from Jesus' own mouth back in Luke 14, that any loss or awkwardness or whatever it was that occurred by doing it, is going to be graciously repaid by God, and he'll reimburse you far more at the resurrection of the righteous. So he's kept track of it. So it's not like you're doing it and nobody remembered. You're being obedient, and then the Lord, like he always is, always repays back in his graciousness. And not to mention, it may be an angel you're hosting, and imagine the talk in heaven after you've done that. So all those things then need to be assimilated. We think about the use of our home, and, and for the overseer, he has to be an example of that. So he has to be doing that regularly. And on top of that, it shows that the pastor or the elder is not somebody who's elevated to a place where he's aloof or un unavailable. And that's how it is in, mo in, in many churches anymore. You can't even talk to someone who's an overseer or an elder, let alone uh, go to dinner in their home. They're completely disattached from all of that. So he can't be remote. He has to be available. It's not a place for seclusion. It's not a place for isolation. His life and his home are open. And it's open not just because he's supposed to show hospitality to those who are strangers to him, but that the true character of his life is pretty clear to those who come over because you don't have to be with someone very long that you figure out how they really are, right? I mean, if you invite them to your house, they're going to know how you really live because you can only say no to your kids and don't say that to your kids so many times and it's going to come out, okay? And your own habits will be clear. And so it shows that you're transparent and that people can see how you live, so it's a place where you become touchable and you hold your home as a stewardship to be used as God sees fit. Because as you think about that, the reality of all of that, and even the awkwardness, and perhaps as you look at your home, you own nothing. I mean, I think that's a reality that we all understand. We've certainly gone through those passages in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And it's not that you should be unthankful for what you have, and, and you want to be a good steward of what the Lord has loaned you. But part of this obedience is going to spring from the fact that we only manage everything we don't own everything. And God gives it to us. Now, look back at 1 Timothy 3.2. Turn back there. We'll look at the last one. Verse 2. 
An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable. Here's the last one. Able to teach. And we see that requirement just one other time in 2 Timothy 2.24. And, and because we've taken time to look at some of the functions of an elder, which we did early on, I took you through some of the names that are used interchangeably for those who lead the church, and then some of their function that's connected to the name. I think you're familiar with this, and you have some background on this, because uh, this is only the only thing in this list of qualifications that really deals with a required task. I mean... I, Hospitality does as well, but it's more of an attitude of you don't own every, anything and that you want people there to see you. And so it's, it's certainly a, a moral and a character issue. But here it says apt to teach, skilled in teaching, didacticon, which is just an adjective that is only used in two places. And it's a rich word. It means to be a skilled teacher. That's the bottom line. Titus chapter 1 verse 9, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. So those who are skilled in teaching, they have to be qualified in that way. They're able not only to pass on the faithful word, to exhort to sound doctrine, to bring lives up to the level they're supposed to be, so you make clear that what you're teaching is the word of God. Not just that, but then when you have people who contradict, you're able to use the word of God to show them that they're incorrect. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, after giving Timothy a list of important doctrines, Paul says, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the word of faith and of sound doctrine, which you have been following. So you're gonna, I'm going to give you these things. I want you to pass them on to the church, and you're going to nourish them and help them grow. And that really sums up the function. So we'll have to think about the modern church now and the average, the average elder who doesn't spend much time in the passage, much time in the Word of God. He's, got, he's way too busy doing three points in a poem and telling you what he wants to tell you and making sure you feel good, you go out, that you're affirmed and all of that. Listen, you're not nourishing anybody. That's not a skilled teacher, although he may have, be a very good orator. He may capture your imagination. You may really enjoy the videos and everything is really cool and the stage is cool and all that. There's no power in any of that because you're not doing what you're supposed to do. That's not a skilled teacher. To the extent that you take the meal that's prepared in the galley and you take it to the table without spilling anything over and over again, to that extent you're skilled. And I'll just say as a sideline, every Monday as I look back at what I spoke to you, I think I stunk. And my wife will affirm that. I used to take Mondays off, but I was in such a blue funk at the end of, during Monday, she just said, why don't you just take another day off because you're no good on Mondays. But this is what you think about yourself, and, and those who've served in the ministry understand this, and those who are PKs understand how their fathers are like that. But you want to do the best job you can, then you always can guess yourself after you're all done, and there's nothing wrong with that. You want to do a good job. You want to make sure that, as I pray every single week as I get ready to write the sermon, this is your church. You know what they need to hear. I don't want to say what I want to say. I want to say what you want to say. So I'm going to stick to this passage, and I want you to exclude all the extraneous comments that I'm going to make, and he does his best, okay? I still go down some of those things. Extrain, chop off those extraneous comments and help them to see you. I don't want them to think about me when they go out. I don't want to think that was a really good sermon. That was really good points. I learned a lot. I want them to think about you, Lord, and so show me what to do, and that's my prayer. And so you have to be a skilled teacher. You have to go about bringing what the Word of God says to the people because that's how they're going to grow and they were made for God's Word. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. We have the last three, of course, the apostles and the prophets. 
those who foretold and all of that, those are all gone. They've left. They, they were gone out of the church after the first century. Now you have evangelists and pastors and teachers. Mark this, verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the works of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. How do they do that? Do they convince them by their charm and their good uh, ability to convince people to do things? Is that how they, they build them up for works of service? No, you use the Word of God so they understand what it says, what it means by what it says, and how does that apply to me, and then you go put it to work. That's the exercise thereof with good nutrition. And so then principle number 11 then, as we think about guidelines for public worship, and the qualifications for an elder, and the example that has to be to everyone else, the overseer must be one who is a good teacher. He must be able to communicate the Word of God so that the body of Christ can be built up and nourished on the words of faith and of sound doctrine. And as you translate that into your own life, realize you know this quality has to be in place in the pulpit. But I would say to you, in a very real sense, that if you are raising children, you're going to be able to need to be apt to teach the Word of God to them too. And you're going to need to know what it says. And if you're living a border life, if you're just kind of Christian in name only, you're just kind of in the faith and out of it, you're just kind of an orbit around the church. But listen, you, you bring children into the world, they're already bound for an eternal hell. That's when they are born under Adam's headship, they're bound for eternal hell. And if you're just in an orbit and you don't understand what the Word of God says, and you're not teaching that regularly, listen, you're not going to be intercepting them anywhere along the way. They're going to see your double life, and they're going to see your inability to express what it means to be a believer, and they're just going to head right on with the rest of the world. And so there is that application for you. But here, these things, Paul says, command and teach, pay close attention to yourself and your teaching, and persevere in these things. Why? It's all about teaching. Chapter 5, verse 17, work hard in the word and teaching. 2 Timothy 1.13, hold on to sound words. 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show yourself approved unto God, what? Rightly dividing the word of truth. So it's all about that, see? It's how to interpret it properly. That's the essence of everything. That's why 2 Timothy 2.2 says, These things you've heard from me commit to faithful men who shall be able to, what? Teach others also. It's the essence of discipleship. You're duplicating yourself by faithful teaching. You want other people to grab that teaching and begin to teach it to someone else. Uh, you take on the characteristics of those who lead the church, those who are stewards, and then you begin to give that and disseminate that out. It's all about teaching. Because now, here's the apostolic era. I mean, it's dying out. The apostles have finished their race. They've completed their course. There's this great need in the church for pastors, teachers, elder shepherds who will repeat what has been written down. That's the essence of sound doctrine. Repeat what's been written down. It's not Kurt's five points of how you can have a better marriage. It's what does the Bible say about that? Let's read that and then put that on. That's how the saints are perfected. So new converts can be discipled, they can begin to grow. No new revelation now, okay? The things you heard from me, commit to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. If you're listening to somebody who says, I've got a word from the Lord from you, and it's not written down in the word of God, you need to shut it off. Because that's a lie, and that's a false teacher. The things that you heard from me, commit to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. All the apostolic new revelations are all done. Now, as we close for today, I think it's important to note a few things with this function right here. And, and I, I know this question has come up. It seems out of place because every other requirement, every other standard, godly standard, has to do with character and testimony. And then you have this that has to do with function. And we can reconcile that, and I think that we should. And you may have this guy who possesses a really great ability in teaching, 
and he may be really, really good at it, but mark this. It um, will avail little for the great practical ends of ministry of equipping the saints and nourishing them in sound doctrine and all of the things we just talked about unless it's accompanied by blamelessness, unless he's above reproach. Because if his life is compromising what he's saying for you to do, then that undermines the entire message, doesn't it? He has to be apt to teach, but you're not an apt teacher if what you say is not what you're doing. And every time we see this in the church, as we see these standards that are not to be negotiated with for those in the pulpit, and then those guys fall, and they get carried off in some sin or whatever, and we see this often, and it's a terrible thing, it's sad, and sure, they should be forgiven, they should be restored. But listen, but every time you take a guy who's not marking these things off as these are qualifications in his life, and then you put him back in the pulpit again, what have you done? You've taken the standard that was supposed to be right here, and then you put it way down here, and then people, what do they say? Well, it's not that big a deal. If holiness isn't that big a deal for those who lead, and this is the example they're supposed to give, then it can't be that big a deal for me either. And that's what you want to avoid. It's going to be without avail for any practical ends of ministry if he's not a one-woman man, if he's a player who's always flirting. It's not going to be, uh, it's going to avail very little if he's not wineless and he's not serious and he doesn't have a sound mind. He's not organized in his ministry. A respectability. And we'll see this next time. I don't have a slide for it, but you can look back in your copy of God's Word. Look at 1 Timothy 3, 3. And I'll just read it because we're going to start on it next week, Lord willing. Not addicted to wine or not in the way of wine. In other words, you're not along with people who are drinkers. Not only are you wineless, you don't hang out in that area either. Pugnacious, that's a giver of blows. Gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He has to be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will we take care of the church of God? What's the rhetorical answer? He can't. Verse 6, and not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Verse 7, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so he will not fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. So see, we just got to list off more of those qualifications, which is the standard of godliness that's to be an example here, and of course, followed in the pulpit and in the pews. I mean, it's just really basic. If you teach one thing, even skillfully, and live another, you're not a skilled teacher. Uh, People are going to be turned away from following the teaching, even though it may be correct. See? You have to pattern your life on what you propagate in your lesson. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, with this we're going to close. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Be clear, this is the challenge for every pastor teacher. This is the great hurdle that you have to get over, see? When you get all done at the end of a Sunday... That's what you want to be able to say. Be imitators of me. I just taught on a lesson. Am I living that? See? And and here's the thing. It's not that you want to be the illustration you use of doing it right every time. Okay? You don't want to be the hero of every story. Because you're not. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying, you know, and I've never said this to you. Be imitators of me if I also am of Christ. It's just that in your teaching, you have to be transparent. And if you are transparent and Not that you're perfect, because no one is, but if your life is aligned with the doctrine you teach, that combination qualifies you as apt to teach. And that's, beloved, I think why it's here. And in good conscience, you can embrace, you be what I am, even though you don't say that.
you show it. So you can see that in itself as a moral qualification. We're out of time now because we're going to have a missions moment in just a minute. But I want to pray. I want to just seek the Lord about the things we've talked about, the things we've seen, and uh, ask the Lord to kind of seal those in our heart that we might begin to put those on. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be together. It's so joyous to be together with those like worshipers who love you, desire to worship you. It's so encouraging to know there are many downstairs who are serving our children faithfully. They came early. They stayed late. They prepared I'm so grateful for that, Father. Thank you for those who are in the back who came very early this morning to get ready for all that we're going to do and those people who played and, and uh, all the things that go on, the greet, those who greeted and gave you coffee. They, they all gave their life. Lord, I'm just grateful that that's happening. Thank you that we're a church full of young people and, and also uh, children. Lord, you've trusted us with them. And this is your work, and we're very grateful for that. And Father, I pray today, as we saw earlier in 1 Timothy 2, that we're to pray for all men everywhere, for all kings and all and who are in authority, that we may live a tranquil and peaceful life in all godliness and sincerity. Because it's not your will, we saw, that any perish, but all come to the knowledge of salvation. So we're to pray, and in that way, impact nations. And it's not that we want to ignore those things that are close to us. We certainly spend much time praying for immediate needs and those that we love even now, those who are hurting and those who are sick and, and struggling today, we lift them up and have been. But Father, we want to make sure that we're doing what you say to do and praying along with your will, which is to pray far from us, to pray for the struggle in the Ukraine, that you might bring peace there, that the church may be able to function as it should, and that you might be peace in Russia by bringing leaders to a saving knowledge of your son, those who are their advisors, to have uh, voices that speak truth, and that you might open hearts and Lord, we think about Brazil, we think about uh, India and all the struggles that are going on there. We pray for the difficulty the church is having. And Lord, we pray right now for the leaders, even local leaders and those who are kings, those who are in authority, that they might come to the knowledge of your, of your son. They might, you might give favor uh, to those who are leading flocks there. They might, the church might function in tranquility and peace. And for us, that we might be godly in all sincerity, that there won't be any blemish that we saw last week in Philippians, that that marks us out perhaps as not truly a believer because of things we've allowed that we think is part of our freedom in Christ. And so, Father, I pray that you convict us as, as you desire to by your Holy Spirit. Affirm the things we're doing correctly as you always do, and knowing that your word goes out and doesn't return void. We're very grateful that we've been able to hear it this morning and just be able to act on it. It's not that they're complicated or unclear. It's just that we don't do it. And that's a heart issue. And I pray, Father, you'll draw us closer to you, into your word each day, soft hearts to identify these areas which are not pleasing to you and the standard of holiness which has fallen short. And we do this, Father, because we love you. We know your commandments are not burdensome. You give them to us because you love us and you want to bless us. And we want to be in the way of that blessing and not in your chastening. And so we pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus, and for his sake. And all God's people said, amen.